The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 195 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. Before we get into this week's episode, we do want to thank a new reviewer on Apple Podcasts. We have a new five-star review from username uh, Trileet, who says the show transcends just being another LDS podcast and very inspiring and much needed in today's world. And thank you so much for taking the time to leave us that review. We really appreciate it. And I could not agree more. Our guests are so inspiring. And I know I love hearing their stories, and this week is no exception. Becky Edwards has lived an incredible life of service. Uh, She actually served in the Utah State House uh, for many years and is now seeking a Senate seat. Uh, in the U.S. Senate, representing the great state of Utah. And I was just so impressed with Becky. I really enjoyed this conversation. Now, I do need to say up front, as we have in all of our episodes where we've had anybody in the world of politics on, that the show in no way endorses any specific candidates, nor any ideology or political parties or anything at all like that. We're just so grateful to have awesome public servants who are willing to come on the show and talk about uh, their lives and being members of the church. And coming up this week in my Latter-day life, oh, there's sunshine, blessed sunshine. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest is an American politician and therapist who served as a member of the Utah House of Representatives from 2009 to 2018, and in 2021 announced her candidacy in the 2022 United States Senate election in Utah. Becky Edwards, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's an honor, and you have accomplished so much in your life. It's uh, the more I studied you the more impressed I am with all of your work. And we got plenty of time to talk about that. But first, we got to get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in Provo, Utah, uh, along with my husband, actually. My dad was a BYU professor of child development, and my mom was a high school teacher at Provo High. This was in the you know 70s. So this was Provo in the 70s. Our My our kids always tease my husband and me about how much we're always talking about, you know, the good old days of Provo in the seventies, but, <laughs> but it, those were good. They were good days. And it was very much a college town. Uh, my husband's dad was Lavelle Edwards, the football coach at BYU for 30 some odd years. And, and um, you know, we, we were friends in high school, but then dated and got married later when my husband was in medical school and I was in a graduate program in social work and marriage and family therapy at BYU. Mm. And so our, our paths crossed again. At that point, we got married, we started our family and, and went around the country for his medical training. And we lived in Seattle, 
New York City, Birmingham, Alabama, and then eventually settled in Davis County, where he started his medical practice here in orthopedic surgery. And we have felt so blessed to have had two parts of this great state really feel like home. We've raised our family here in North Salt Lake Bountiful area and have loved Davis County and feel really deep roots to to Utah and to the the communities that we've really been blessed to both grow up in and then also help grow our families in. Well, I love it. I have a tremendous amount of love for Provo as that's where we brought our first children home to. So I (laughs) also love Provo. And in my past, in my past acting career, I once got to do a commercial for a bank as a football player with none other than coach Edwards. So that was uh that's a little fun tie there. Um, that many, is a fun tie. Many years later, um, he was sitting across from me on a flight and I was in an aisle seat and he was in an aisle seat. And I leaned over and I said, you will never remember this, but 20 years ago, you and I did a commercial together and he said, Oh, the, my buddy commercial. I went, you oh, got my it. Goodness. So that was fantastic. That was just a few years before he passed. So, um, and actually I want to talk about coach Edwards a little bit more, uh, because that's a big deal, but, uh, tell us when, when you were growing up, what were you, what were you into? What were your hobbies? Oh, I, I was a really big, um, pianist and violinist. So music was always a really important part of my growing up. I grew up in a in a ward and in a neighborhood where all my friends played instruments and we had a singing, like a, you know, a little singing group. We sang around a lot and uh, we all played, you know, instruments together. And it was, it was wonderful in that way. In high school, I was really involved in student government and had run for office every, let's see, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th and 12th grade. Um, many years used the very same slogan, um, and it. I was only unsuccessful in seventh grade. So after that, the slogan was "Becky Price is nice," and <laughs> <laughs> it lent itself to the beauty of writ of rhyming. I don't know how how effective that would be in today's setting, but um, it it taught me a lot about. Uh, what it what it means to actually be be an elected person. When I started seventh grade at Fair Junior High on Center Street in Provo, yep. um, our neighborhood had previously gone to Dixon. But my entering seventh grade year, they were doing some re you know reboundary boundaries were changing, and so our ward was the first from our area to go to fair junior high. So when I ran in seventh grade, no one, no one knew me. And I was so determined that the very next year, you know, the spring that I would run again, but I would make good on my promise to like get to know as many people as I could. And I really think in some ways that was sort of the beginning of some of what I'm involved in now in this kind of like a listening tour around the state getting to know people uh, with a slightly different stage, you know, we're the whole state instead of just the seventh graders at fair junior high, but the same idea of getting to know people, what are their needs? What do they like? What, what, um, you know, what 
ways can can we work together to try and make either the school or our state better? So those were kind of some things that I was involved in. Oh, and sewing. My mom was a sewing teacher and sewing and home economics was big in our family. We always made things uh, to go to the county fair. And, you know, if you could get a rosette at the county fair and you went to the state fair, that was big. That was big (laughs) stuff. So those were good days. You mentioned that you had met your husband when you were younger. How, How old were you when you guys met? That was actually at Fair Junior High. He was an eighth grader and I was a seventh grader. Wow. And big upperclassman. Wow. Yeah, it, it really was. It was the upperclassman. You're absolutely right. Love it. When you left high school, where did you go next? I went to BYU mm. and, and graduated in home economics education with a goal to be a sewing teacher like my mom and kind of follow in my mom's footsteps there. And so that was, that was great. Uh, But then later found myself wanting to be more in an advocacy position and to leaning towards counseling. And that's when I got into the, uh, was actually a dual master's program they had at BYU in social work. So an MSW and then a master's in marriage and family therapy. And in between graduated from BYU and that program, I had actually been married and divorced and came back to BYU to be in that, that master's program. So that was a twist of, of turn in life that I was not expecting, uh, but ended up as many twists and turns do for, um, for the better. What was that adjustment like being back at BYU, having been through a marriage and a divorce? And then how did that kind of bless you and help you in in that part of your life? You know, I think it was certainly an unexpected. Like you say, it was not something that you think, oh, yeah, this will be this will be fantastic. I'll just pencil this in. Um, (laughs) But what it what it really created for me was um, an opportunity to see life in through a different lens. And I think it ramped up my empathy tremendously. Um, I had had prior to that quite a a series of um, successes in my life that had made kind of my life seem like a quite a cheery little path of rainbows and unicorns and so many, (laughs) I mean, lots of hard work. Don't, don't discount that lots of of hard work, but some, some really great blessings along the way with, with um, not very many huge failures. This was, this was a, like a, a very, hard wake up that life is not going to be everything that you always expect. And this is a, this is a time to kind of have a character reassessment and what is most important in your life and staying connected with um, your faith and with the gospel and re-looking for opportunities to find a path, but also find a path to serve. Mm. And I think it it created in me a desire to um, find um, a way to help others. Yeah, and, that's beautiful. You know, for people who are in maybe some similar circumstances. 
When you were going through this program, did you know what you might want to do with your degree? You know, I I don't think I was thinking about uh, public policy, although, you know, in a social work program, of course, social work does have an advocacy, you know, section of, of that field and, and is uh, certainly part of that. I enjoyed those classes, but I was much more um, inclined to family therapy and mm-hmm. bringing systems of people together that in many cases were in crisis, were experiencing some relationship dysfunction, uh, you know, and in many ways, unbeknownst to me at the time, that created in me a skill set and a desire to be able to kind of work through some of these challenges of bringing people together who had very, very different views on what they were experiencing, that ended up helping me tremendously as a state legislator, actually. And I don't, I don't think I knew that at the time. I mean, I know I didn't know that at the time, Uh, but it gave me a patience for that process of bringing people together and knowing that it was possible to work through um, frustration, uh, disagreements, dysfunction, even arguments, and being able to sort of sift through that, be respectful through the process, uh, and and end up with a, a positive result. Tell us about meeting John, or re-meeting John, not meeting John. Re-meeting. Tell us yeah. how you and John got together. Well, so he just called me out of the blue um, one he was in between years of medical school and, and called me and said, Hey, this is, I'll still remember this because I thought it was so funny at the time. And he said, Hey, this is John Edwards. I don't know if you remember me from high school. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course I remember you from high school. We were really good friends. We were on the debate team together. We were, (laughs) you know, we done all, we were in student government together, but he had, uh, he had felt sort of, a prompting actually. And, and some ladies in his neighborhood had given him hints, you know, you should really think about asking out Becky price. (laughs) And, and so he, I think, however, he got to the point of calling me, he did. And again, life is not always exactly as you plan, but we've had, we've had a a great life together um, working through challenges and experiences and, and trying to make communities better wherever we've lived. So this led to you moving around the country to lots of different places. Yeah, it did. We were in Seattle for a, so we graduated from medical school at the U. And during that time, I was working as a a marriage and family therapist at LDS hospital doing family therapy. And then also as the trauma social work coordinator at the, in the emergency room and in one of the ICUs up there. And, and uh, then we moved to Seattle. He did an internship there four years in New York city for residency. And then a year in, in Birmingham, Alabama. So we sort of felt like we had seen, seen the country. And while he had job offers to go other places, I think our hearts were just pulling us back to Utah. As you mentioned at the beginning, I served from 2009 to 2018 in the Utah House. But at the end of those 10 years, uh, then 
we had always said that when John turned 60, now remember, he's the older one in the relationship. So when he turned 60, I was still only 58, (laughs) but we would, we'd put our papers in and we'd serve a mission. And so we, we did. And you know, when you're a senior missionary, you can kind of go through and on the website, kind of pick through and see what seems good. And, and we did, and boy, it was so many, I mean, whoever writes those descriptions up ought to get a raise or a prize or something, because (laughs) every single mission just sounds like the best thing in the universe. You just think, yes, Cove Fort. Yes. Visitor (laughs) center. I would love that. I love Cove Fort. I know it is. (laughs) And then the next, you know, read, oh, Singapore. Absolutely. Finally, we thought, no, we can't possibly decide. We just have to let the Lord decide. And we were young and healthy and we thought we'd just be willing to go anywhere. So we got a call to American Samoa and served for uh, 20 months there as humanitarian missionaries. And reason why I bring this up is because it was in many ways, kind of a, um, for such a time as this kind of moment Mm. for, for John, he was called to be the uh, medical, uh, specialist, I think, or spec or advisor or something. And he, he was able to start uh, a total knee replacement program on the mm. island where he he brought he helped bring in the equipment with some some colleagues here in Utah that he'd been working with forever they brought the equipment into American Samoa and he and the two orthopedic surgeons that were already on the island in this very remote tropical medical center um grew a program John taught these doctors how to do this surgery in, and, you know, with the equipment they'd never had and the skill set they never had and together uh, created this program where those doctors are continuing to do this now, even after we've gone. So it's really a great self-reliance model. And it was, it was a time when many times on our mission, I thought, this is the Lord's hand in your life that you have been blessed with experiences that have created um, opportunities for you to be in a position with the skills and the means to help people. And mm-hmm. while John was doing that with his knee replacement program, um, my work as a social worker came in handy as my my role on our mission was a mental health um, advisor or specialist. And so I was the mental health person for all the missionaries in the South Pacific Island missions, those eight missions. And what this meant is, you know, upon a recommendation from a mission president, I'd get a phone call. And of course, this is all just phone, not even Zoom, not even FaceTime. These are missionaries in the middle of you know, small remote islands around the South Pacific. And we're having conversations over a phone and I can hear most of the time chickens in the background (laughs) and, you know, dogs barking. And we're having conversations about their, the challenges and opportunities for growth that they're having on their missions. And for me, I really feel like that empathy that I was mentioning earlier and my professional experience and then life experiences, I think, put me in a place where I was able to help a lot of missionaries in that, in that role as a missionary. And then 
got to teach at the community college there on the island. And it was a great experience. And we came home in December, no, of January, actually, January of 2021. And then it was uh, not very long after we came home that I decided to run for the U.S. Senate. But the Lord's hand in our, I think, in our experiencing um, life and then also professional preparation really helped prepare us for for that mission. And it was a great, great What an incredible experience for both of you to be able to utilize your unique skill sets to bless the lives of others. That is just incredible. I want to go back to your time in the state Senate. Uh, first of all, did you still have kids at home when you, when you ran for the state Senate? Yeah. So it was the state house and I, oh, I did house. when I, yeah. yeah, when I ran the first time in 2008. So we have four children, two were already um, out of the house. The last two, one had just finished eighth grade and one had just finished, had just graduated from high school actually. And so they were only two at home. And then in the middle of the campaign, my son returned from his mission with a bunch of his, his friends were all coming back from their missions at the same time. So we had this sort of built-in powerhouse team of people who were already used to knocking on doors, who were already used to working for a cause, but uh, our cause was a little less critical to the, you know, the world than the missionary cause, but, but we had them, them working in my eighth grader and 12th grader worked a lot. It was really a family thing and, and friends and very grassroots. And um, it was a great experience for our family. And when, when we made it through that first Republican primary in 2008, it very much felt like we, we did this because we all kind of figured it out together and it, it was a, a great, a great experience for our family. Was it scary to make that final step? I mean, there's a big difference between talking about it and then you file your paperwork. <laughs> was that like, like turning it in there? Cause there's no real turning back. I mean, you could give up on it, but once it's turned in, it's out there. You're, it's public. Yeah. Record. You're, you're kind of doing it at that point. And I, <laughs> I remember quite honestly, the very first person that I ever told who was not a family member um, that I was going to run. And I mean, my family member, this, my parents, my sisters, my, my husband uh, and everybody, everyone was super supportive, but I very clearly remember sitting, getting a haircut and I'm in a, like a salon somewhere. And, and the stylist said, so what's new in your life? (laughs) <laughs> and it's sort of like, I got really close. I'm like, come here, come here. So she gets closer to me. I'm like, I've decided I'm going to run for the Utah state house. <laughs> and like, I was so not, I don't know. Like I was just kind of scared to like own it. And she's like, what, what is that? <laughs> so then I start explaining it to her and it wasn't long you know, maybe a minute or two into that explanation that I thought, okay, I don't need to be sheepish about this. I can own this. I'm, I'm running, you know, by the time I ended that conversation and she'd cut my hair and I was ready to leave that place. I was like, I am ready to like own this and actually get to work and make this happen. 
But I'll, yeah, that very, very first time I said those words out loud, it was, it, it was kind of a little bit, there was some trepidation. <laughs> I love it. What surprised you the most about running for the house? Uh, in some ways, how fun it was. Um, in that, I mean, of course, they're the, they're the hard stories and all of that, but I ended up loving so much about running. I loved meeting with people. I loved, um, this was during the system where you had to go through only the caucus convention system. So this meant you were dealing with delegates. So in, in my first couple of races, these were state delegates, and this was like maybe 125 or 130 people. And what you do at that point is before the primary, you're not really out campaigning to, you know, before the state convention, you're just campaigning to those delegates is all. So this means sitting in 130 living rooms, talking to people, (laughs) making a connection, building a relationship. And I'll tell you what, I could have done that a thousand and thirty times. I I loved that. I loved sitting down with people, hearing their stories uh, learning about their families, what was working in their lives, what are the challenges that they were facing in their families or their businesses, and kind of reasoning together, boy, how could we do things differently? How could the, you know, how could we make things better for you? And I loved that. That is incredible. Uh, so you got to get through the primary process first. You end up uh, getting the nomination. How exciting is election night? Well, it it was really quite exciting. Uh, we that very first year, about half we were actually going to California that night. My husband's family every year has one week at a like at a beach house that they rent um, back when you know back in the day. And this <laughs> happened to be the week of the beach trip, the Edwards family beach trip. And so we were going to obviously stay for the election night, but I remember like I was doing laundry or something. And my husband came in the laundry room and he said, you know, this is maybe like four o'clock in the afternoon. And our flight is at eight o'clock. We're hopping on a plane that night at eight (laughs) o'clock to fly to LA. And he's like, well, I think we should stop calling people. I think it's good. I think you've won. I'm like, there's no way, you know, this there's, we have no way of knowing if I've won. And he said, no, it doesn't, I'm not talking about the votes. I don't know what the votes will be, but you've won the election because we've worked hard. You've Mm. kept your integrity. We've, you know, brought a lot of people uh, into this process. We've included people and it's been a great opportunity said you've, you have won in all the ways that really matter. And so we got ready and we went out to the airport. And before we got on the plane, the first election results had come in and I was ahead 12 votes to eight votes. And, <laughs> and then the, awesome. the plane, and then the plane took off. So we lost oh. our, our service and, you know, we all sort of thought, well, this is at least at one point in this race, I was ahead. This is good. So we land in LA, you know, an hour and a half later and my my son, um, Matthew, was like scrolling through the phone, trying to get service, you know, as fast as he can. This is in 2008. So whatever yeah. type of iPhone we had at that point. And finally, he's just looking for the numbers and he sees under my name a, a five, 50 something. It was going to be 50 whatever percent. 
And it didn't matter if it's 59% or 50.1. Yeah. It was 50 something. We won. And so he's like, mom, mom, we're still on. I mean, we're just barely had landed. We're not even at the gate yet. And he's like, you won, you won. And the, he, the, my daughters that were on the plane, there were five of us there. She, the, both daughters just started screaming and everyone on the plane's like, what's happening? What's up? And one daughter stands up, my mom, she just won an election. She's in the Utah house. The plane is cheering. And so it was, it was kind of a fun, fun way to find out. That is so memorable. Just wonderful. So you get back from a what I can imagine was maybe not the most relaxing week at the beach, <laughs> maybe, or maybe it was because you knew it wasn't going to be relaxing for a while. Yeah. What was your first week in the house like? You know, quite honestly, they do a really good job of like helping you kind of learn the process and all of that kind of stuff, training you and, and you appreciate that. But I think the first week for sure, I just thought, oh, I don't. I don't know if I know enough. I don't know if I can do this. Um, There was a lot of like what now I know they call it imposter syndrome and thinking, oh, I, what have I gotten myself in? I'm never going to learn everything. So this was, I was on the transportation committee. That Mm. was my first committee. And it was so much detailing about all the different types of roads and transportation (laughs) projects and projections going out, you know, 20, 30 years. And I just remember thinking, I have no context for this. I I'll never learn all of this. And, uh, it was, you know, it was then that, that, uh, I had, I had some really good colleagues who gave me confidence and said, it's going to come. And also, it's also not about you. Remember, this is about the people you've been elected to serve. So it's less about you and making sure more about that you're really representing those people. Stay in touch with your people. Stay in touch with your voters. They'll they'll help you know what what matters the most. And and you'll learn. The learning is going to come. And and they were right. Keeping a focus on the, the people that had elected me was something that served me well through the years. Oh, beautiful. Do you have a favorite issue you worked on while you were in the house? Oh, I have a lot of, lot of things. And I think, you know, someone the other day asked me if I had an issue that, that impacted not very many people, but was still meaningful. Mm. And I, I I'll share two stories. I'll share a story that was like, it got a lot of attention and I'll share a story that got not very much attention, but mattered a lot to a small group of people. So the small one first, um, it was an issue related to guardianship of children with intellectual disabilities. Mm. When they, when they uh, get to the age of 18, their parents lose their, their guardianship of those, of those, their, their children, they've been taking care of for, for years. And of course, when it when that's an appropriate thing that a child is able to as an adult at now at age 18 to make their own decisions and have that capacity then that's that's great and that's the ideal but for those for whom it's not the process for a parent now to gain guardianship so they can continue to have a say with the medical decisions and all of and education 
all of that is expensive, it's complicated, and it's a really arduous process. And it's kind of deeply offensive to parents who have been doing this their, you know, the entire life of their child. So was able to hear about this from some constituents and and work with some people who helped educate me along the way. And we worked together and we we passed a some legislation that decreased the fee. I mean, like brought it down tremendously. So it was something that people, it could be affordable, put the process online. So it it could be something that people could even start and do a lot of it themselves and brought in um, pro bono attorneys and just changed the whole process for not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people a year, but enough. And it made for those people for whom this was a real barrier and impediment made a really big difference. So that was really gratifying. That was a big thing. I will, I will say for me and Jean, that's a big deal. I have, uh, I I have guardianship over two of my children. So, okay. So, you know, this is a, it's a big deal. It is a really big deal. And so I don't think I've had any bill that I worked on where people were as appreciative as that, as that piece of legislation. Well, it's and, it, like I said, it's very personal. I know for Jean and for me, so it's a big, big yeah. deal. All right. What was the other one? The other one, uh, I had a group of students that I worked with. So I came into the legislature with hot buttons on education and healthcare and ran into a, a group of students uh, t- 2017 who had been working on an issue around climate change and they were out of their high school kids out of Logan High. And in Davis County, air quality has always been a really big issue and not a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. It's just a Davis County thing. And people in Davis County care deeply about air quality. So this was sort of a build on, on air quality. And I, I went up to these kids when I heard their presentation on this piece of legislation. And I said, hey... I'd be happy to work with you. And from now until the next legislative session in 2018, let's see if we can get better language on the bill and we can like make it so it's possible it could actually pass. And so we worked for 10 months on that piece of legislation together, this group of students, myself and other, you know, advocates and people in the community who cared about climate and uh, environmental stewardship and and people from the faith community as well, and so we we finally got some language that I thought was good, and then we started to shop it around to my colleagues. And I started with the people that I knew would hate it the most. I'm going back <laughs> to my you know my social work roots, and I'm yeah. like, let's bring on, let's not just bring the people that are going to love this. Let's have those hard conversations and try and understand and listen for real listen learn and try and make something better. And so we did that over and over with all of my legislative colleagues. And then when we brought it to the House in the January of the next year in 2018, uh, passed out of the House committee in the floor and the Senate committee that wouldn't even hear the bill the previous year, passed it out unanimously because we had done all of this long-term work for 10 months. And when it finally had final passage, the next day, we started to get phone calls from CNN, 
New York Times, Washington Post, the state of Texas, state of Alabama saying, wow, how did you how did you do this in a solidly red state pass the first piece of legislation in the entire country acknowledging our changing climate and the roles we we need to play for environmental stewardship as we plan out, you know, a sustainable economy going forward. How did you do that? And it was wonderful to be able to highlight this student group that I worked with and also this approach of civility, of tenacity, and of bringing people together, finding common ground and building on that. It's a recipe that was super successful on that. And that has gone on to be the framework for uh, the Kemsey Gardner work that they're doing for the state on climate and clean air. And it's it's been incredible to see how that has built into something that will uh, be really instrumental in making a change going forward. Oh, so great. So we are living in an online community where people are uh, feel very emboldened when they can kind of hide behind anonymity online. How do you deal with, you know, I'm sure you got to see some unflattering comments uh, toward you or toward the house, uh, toward your your work. And here you put so much of your heart and passion into it. How do you deal with that? You know, I I think keep it in perspective and and try and remember that when people are really, really upset about something, it it's their goal is not to attack you. They're coming at this from a place of vulnerability, a place of something is not working for them and it's personal. And it it matters to them. And I think to to always keep that in mind that they're not really actually attacking you. There's mm. a bigger problem. And let's let's try and root that out. Let's try and leave the ideology behind and figure out what the problem is. And then I think bringing people together to solve a problem is so much easier than bringing people together to try and convince around a certain political philosophy or what have you. But, you know, to the negativity piece of this, um, I'll never forget when I ran in 2010. So I had won my first election. Now I'm running in 2010. And uh, it was a it was a hard it was a hard election year. and there was some groups that had come from out of state that were putting a lot of money into this house race, a, a state house race and putting money into this and lots of negative flyers. And it was, it was actually pretty intense. And I remember complaining to my father-in-law one day, complaining to Lavelle. And, you know, he said, how's your campaign going? I'm like, well, pretty good, but it's actually also terrible. And he's like, why? And I said, well, there's so much negativity and people are being so mean online and they're saying, you know, all this mean stuff and some of it's not even true. And he's like, yeah, I, I understand. That's kind of hard. I'm like, no, Lavelle, I don't think you do understand. I'm like, it's actually, you don't get it. It's like, these are people that <laughs> they don't even know me. They're saying these things, they're putting it out in print. And he's like, well, I, I actually kind of do, Becky. <laughs> And I doubled down. I'm like, no, you don't. He said, well, actually, you know, I've been coaching for 20, you know, some odd years and 30, whatever. We've had a lot of losses, actually. And when we lose, we see some of those same things. And it's hard. I said, how do you deal with that? And he said, 
well, you just don't read the negative and you keep your eye focused on why you're doing what you're doing. And you just realize there's another game the next week. And his perspective on kind of keeping your eye focused on what the most important thing. And for him, it was, you know, the next game or relationships with his players and other coaches. That was really uh, instructive for me and watching his example of how to do that um, game after game, season after season for decades. It was having a front row seat to how to work with, with people who do feel deeply passionate about things like, why are you still running the single wing offense? Why are you doing, you know, or whatever it is? Why did you vote that way? And, and being able to walk it, walk it back to, to what's the most important. What beautiful perspective. And if I'm being honest, I was kind of hoping that there would be a coach Edwards story in here. So I'm really glad to hear it. Oh my heck. Okay. I'm since you asked for, I'm just going to tell you quickly one other coach Edwards story. So this was the very same year in 2010. So during this time I had a, a part of Rose park was in my, so I'm in Davis County, but they'd kind of, when they had redistricted, they'd brought in part of uh, Rose park into my district. And so we're, we're down there in 2010, we're going to knock knock on doors. So we bring a whole team of people, you know, a whole bunch of family members and, and some of our kids, friends, and we meet at a park and we pass out the maps and everyone has like maybe 20 or 30 houses. And then we're all going to meet in a few hours back at the park. So everyone leaves and Lavelle and his wife, my mother-in-law, Pat, they were together. They were the team. They had their map off they go. And then we all met back and now we're sitting around talking, how did your route go? How many houses did you knock into? How many signs did you place? What's the vibe? You know, how did you register anybody to vote? All this kind of stuff. And people had been in, you know, we we knocked on 30 doors. We placed 10 lawn signs, this kind of thing. Then we get to Pat and Lavelle. I'm like, how'd you guys do? Lavelle said, well, I think we did pretty well. I'm like, how many houses did you knock on? He said, I think we went to... I don't know, maybe three or four, I'm like three or four. And I was kind of panicking. Like, did I give them the wrong list? What happened? Did they get lost? What was going on? And I said, three or four, was there a problem? He said, no, no, I think they're all going to vote for you. And then he went on to tell a story of each place that they went, they, you know, the person opens the door and there is Lavelle Edwards and they're like, Oh, well, come on in coach. And then pretty soon they're calling their neighbors to come <laughs> over and they're getting pictures. And Lavelle had a deep love of gardening actually. So then they're out in their backyard showing Lavelle their flowers and their tomato plants. And I mean, I, I, he was probably my least efficient <laughs> You know, person who ever worked on the campaign, but absolutely the most effective because I can guarantee you those three or four houses, solid votes. They still tell that story. They still tell that story. Oh, that's so great. I love it. And we have, you know, listeners all around the globe. I think we just need to take a moment to say Lavelle Edwards was not a coach of BYU football. He was the coach. And when you drive by, you can see in big letters, it is Lavelle Edwards Stadium. The entire stadium is named after him. And 
and uh, all the amazing people that came through that program. He built that program. He built that house. And I love that story. I'm so glad you shared it. (laughs) Well, let's talk about your future plans. What prompted you to want to run for the Senate? Well, you know, quite honestly, it's a little bit like in 2008, watching something that I thought was broken. And what's broken now is we have a political kind of conversation happening in our country right now that is divisive and hyper-politicized and just full of radicalism. And it's not good for our country. It's not good for effective leadership. And just knowing that there's a better way, because having served in the Utah House for 10 years, I know there's a better way because that's how I did it. And I know that you can be effective. You can still be deeply committed to your principles, but also be able to work in a bipartisan way and be incredibly effective at representation. And so I know there's a better way. That's why that's why I'm in this race is to bring a better voice, um, better politics and better solutions to to the people of Utah. How tiring is it running for a national office? Well, you know how I said about liking to talk to the delegates? Mm-hmm. It's it's a little bit like that, just on a bigger scale. So when I served before, every Saturday during the legislative session, we would open up our house and people would come in, sit in the living room, and we'd have bagels and we'd sit on the couches and we'd talk about issues. They'd tell me their stories and we'd sometimes they'd be complaints. Sometimes they'd say, that vote was bad. You shouldn't have done that. Or here, I'm going to give you some suggestions on this. And it was always awesome. When I decided to run for the U.S. Senate, I was really sad that I wouldn't have the opportunity to have over what I had for 10 years, which was literally hundreds of people in my house over those 10 years. Um, I knew I'd miss it. And then I got an idea. Instead of having people into my home, we'd take a piece of my home around the state. So we have this yellow couch that's from our house, and it just fits in the back of our Volkswagen Atlas. And we're taking that thing around the state. And I have loved the opportunity to sit down, you know, take that couch out, put it in a park in Ephraim or a rec center up in Vernal or, you know, all across the state down in Kanab and St. George and Tremont and all these places and talk to people and hear about their, their families and their small businesses and what they want to see different. So that part of it is incredibly invigorating. I, I love that. If people want to know more about you and your policies and your stands, where is the best place for them to go? Oh, the best place is Becky for Utah. So it's B-E-C-K-Y-F-O-R-Utah.com. That's our website. You know, follow us on social media. We're on all the platforms under Becky for Utah. And just, just get engaged. I think that's what we're seeing people kind of feeling hopeful about their voices mattering and rekindling that desire to, to get involved again and that politics is, is a place where our voices can matter, should matter, and they do. 
I have so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Oh, I think for me, of course, I'm a I'm a lifelong member, um, and I the the church. And being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints means everything to me. It's my home, both spiritually and also uh, culturally, and and as a as a tradition. And here in the state, I think what it being a member of the church has provided me with a perspective about my fellow man that I think is instructive. Um, provided me a deep commitment to care for in every possible way to bring every talent to the table to make my my communities and my families stronger and better. Um, so it's given me a deeper perspective and appreciation for our our neighbors as children of God. And it's increased my commitment to try and help people. And I feel really blessed to have um, a testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint and Saints and its mission here um, in the United States, but also in a global set, setting as well, having served internationally as a missionary and seeing the good things that happen on a humanitarian and Latter-day Saint charities. It's in something I think we can all learn from, be proud of, and be inspired by. I know I am. Beautiful. She is a wife, a mother, a therapist, a politician, and she is running for the Senate to represent the great state of Utah. Becky Edwards, thank you for sharing your Latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And my special thanks to my guest, Becky Edwards. I was so touched and impressed by Becky's dedication to service. She just seems like her whole life, her goal in life has been to bring people together and uh, to serve them. And I just think what an awesome example that is. Thank you so much, Becky. This week in my Latter-day life, uh, Saturday morning, I had an interesting experience. My wife and son had gone skiing and I was left here with the dogs. And it was early in the morning, and my dogs usually kind of take a little bit of time to wake up, but for some reason, they were just excited. And uh, I don't think I've mentioned them too much, but I have two dogs. I have a dog named Trip, who is quite a bit older and is a Springer Spaniel, but still has a lot of energy. And then we have a one and a half year old Great Dane named Penny, and they are a lot of fun. I love my dogs. But on Saturday morning, they were just kind of bouncing off the walls. And so I was thinking about taking them for a walk. And for some reason, it hit me. I wonder if there's a dog park near us. You know, we've taken them to dog parks when we've traveled and we've been out of state. But normally here, I just take them up to the park across the street from our house and they run around. Uh, But I thought it might be fun to try to find a dog park. And I found one in Orem. And it's actually up in Provo Canyon. And I wasn't sure exactly where it was, but I got dressed up in pretty warm clothes. It was, I think, 24 degrees outside when we left. And I loaded the dogs into my truck and we we headed out. And I found this dog park about 15 minutes from my house. But it was well up, kind of on the way to Sundance from Provo, if you're familiar with that area. And basically it's in the mountains, or the, the foothills of the mountains. 
And when I got up there, I didn't realize that's exactly where it was. It was really cold outside and there were no other dogs there. But I I got out. It's kind of a neat little park. You know, it's all fenced in. And the dogs were just thrilled. They had so much energy. So they were running all over and just having a ball. Meanwhile, I was standing there freezing. I was so cold. And it wasn't dark out, you know. I mean, daylight had broken, and uh, even though it was fairly early in the morning. But I stood there just shivering, and I had on gloves and a ski hat and thermals and a jacket, but I was shivering. And I couldn't figure out why was I so cold, and I started kind of pacing and trying to get warmer. And I kept thinking, it's daylight. I should not be this cold. I could look around. It was obviously daytime. And then all of a sudden I realized the sun was just barely peeking from the mountains. And the mountains had been blocking the the full sun. And when that sunlight came through, it felt like it got about 10 degrees warmer standing out there. And then the sun came up more and more. And I realized I was kind of standing in a, a shadow And I stepped out and I stood in that sun and I stretched out my arms. And that sun, I don't know how much actually it got warmer in that moment, but that sun sure did make it feel warmer. And then uh, a woman showed up with a couple more dogs and our dogs started running around together and suddenly I wasn't shivering anymore. Suddenly I wasn't quite as cold. And that sun, I just kept noticing it. And if you had asked me before it had come up, is the sun out? I would have looked around and said, yeah, it's light. So obviously the sun's out, but it was being blocked from me. And I think the gospel can be that way sometimes where we kind of lose our way and we get casual with things of the gospel and we think we're doing fine because we can see things, you know, the, the same way that we always have. But when we really look around, maybe we're having things that block the gospel and the fullness of the spirit from us sometimes. And we don't even realize it. And then we feel down and we feel like, I wonder what's going on in my life. Why am I not as happy as I normally am? And then when we recommit ourselves to the gospel, sometimes that sun comes back and we go, wow, I didn't realize what I was missing. I'll tell you what's an even greater, greater experience than that sun. The heater in my truck when I got back in, I turned on my heated seats, my heated steering wheel. I cranked that heater all the way up. But I was really grateful to be able to notice the difference between when the sun was hidden and when the sun was fully out. What a blessing it was and how fun it was to be out there with my dogs. I will be back at that dog park. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Do you know someone who would enjoy this show? If you are a fan of the show, if we could just ask you to share it with just one person, our numbers continue to grow and these types of numbers that we're getting really help us to get incredible guests onto the show and we're just so grateful for it. If you want to reach out to us, you can reach out to us on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, or you can send a message to me. It's uh, sean at latterdaylives.com. It's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. If you have something for our social media, you can email social at latterdaylives.com and uh, Skylar will get back to you. And we're always looking for great guests. And as we've mentioned in the past, especially uh, diverse guests from outside of Utah. I mean, that's our normal circle here, but we would love to have guests from, uh, you know, anywhere in the world. We love talking to Latter-day Saints about their lives. 
So if you do know someone who would be a great guest, please email it over to guest at latterdaylives.com. The Latterday Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>